when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Four million Brits in the north of England have seen lockdown tightened as Health Secretary Matt Hancock admitted the virus was spreading rapidly again. I understand the impact that this has on on people's lives, but people absolutely understand that we need to make changes fast and we need to move quickly. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times with me, Sebastian Payne. In this episode, I'll be discussing the latest on coronavirus, including what's being done to tackle localised outbreaks and the chaos for those returning from holiday, with Chief Political Correspondent Jim Picard and Political Correspondent Laura Hughes. And later, I'll be looking at how the old Labour heartlands are feeling about Boris Johnson in the age of the pandemic and the new Labour leader Keir Starmer, with columnist Robert Shrimsley and our Northern Correspondent Andy Bounds. So Jim and Laura, welcome back. Good morning. Hello. So August is now here and with it another relaxation partially of some of the lockdown rules. Instead of working from home, I think most of England is now being urged back to the office whenever possible. Jim, how do you feel about going back to the office, which is our little cubbyhole in the parliamentary press gallery? Well, I've been going back for the last sort of five or six weeks, but only on a Wednesday, once a week. And I cycle in, cycle back, avoiding public transport. And I go into the chamber and watch PMQs, or I did before recess. And the first time I went back in, it was quite exciting. There are loads of MPs there to talk to. You can get a coffee at a socially distanced distance in Portcullis House with advisors and MPs. And I kind of quite like the novelty of it. But I can happily acknowledge that most of the work can be done from home. And I wouldn't say that my output significantly improves from going to the office in our little Warren in the House of Commons. I mean, what is good is when your colleagues are there, as you know, Seb sat a few feet away from you, you can knock ideas backwards and forwards an awful lot easier than doing it remotely. I mean, that's probably the one advantage where you can just come to conclusions a little bit faster and bounce ideas off each other. The only other thing I've discovered this week is that doing my work expenses remotely is apparently impossible. So I'm going to have to find a way to, to get back into the office at some point and do those. Although my expenses over the last four months have been incredibly minimal, as you can imagine. Well, that's a very pressing reason to make sure you get back to the office. When the lockdown began, I found the novelty of working from home quite nice. But then, like you, Jim, I like going back and doing the things that we normally do, talking to MPs, ministers, aides, people who are milling around Parliament. The thing that I've enjoyed about going back into the office occasionally has been doing socially distanced drinks with contact in the park. We've had some nice weather. You can sit apart do the usual chats, gossip, exchanging of information, all that sort of thing. It does slightly concern me, though, that the FT's room in the press gallery is tiny, dark, small, and occupied by many mice, and it doesn't strike me as the most healthy place. But unfortunately, Laura, you're not going to be there for some time because you're currently somewhere in England, I think. You've been out in Suffolk. What do you miss the most about working in Parliament? 
I just miss you all. I actually really do. I've been pregnant throughout lockdown. And so on a personal level, in many ways, it's been much easier to be feeling not great in the comfort of your own home and not jumping on the tube every day. But I do, I just miss the energy. And as you both mentioned, I mean, a large part of our job is bumping into people and having a chat. I mean, that's how I get most of my stories. So it has been quite difficult to do that. But actually, overall, I have to say, not commuting has been a bit of a joy. I agree with that. I think a lot of our stories come from, as you said, just a secondary conversation with someone that gives you a tip. And I think at the beginning, we all struggled a little bit with that. But now, actually, we find ourselves in the odd situation where some of the lockdown rules are being loosened while others are being tightened. So let's examine what's been happening with coronavirus this week. At 11.30pm on Thursday night, the Johnson government made an abrupt change to the UK's lockdown rules. Across Northern England, millions are now banned from meeting other households resulting from localised outbreaks. The timing was somewhat abrupt, with the announcement made just half an hour before the measures came into place. The new rules came following a week of chaos over quarantine, with the government rapidly deciding to reimpose it for those returning from Spain. Thousands of Brits abroad therefore saw all of their travel plans disrupted, much to the annoyance of Spain's Prime Minister, Pedro Sanchez. Jim, let's begin with what happened in Northern England overnight on Thursday. Why did the government decide to do this so quickly? So I think to be fair to ministers, what they've said in recent weeks is that as circumstances change, they will change guidance and they will change rules really quickly because they don't want to risk coronavirus spreading and getting out of hand. And the action with Spain, taking Spain off the safe list of non-quarantine countries on Saturday night was very fast. And then this action on Northern England was very fast as well. They've looked at the data and in a lot of these areas, they've seen very high levels of cases of COVID-19. So in Blackburn and Darwin, for example, the figure is 69 cases per 100,000. That is higher than the Spanish average. It's also higher than Leicester, which has been in a semi-lockdown for quite a few weeks. And so they've jumped in to take action. But a lot of the protest last night was about the speed of it, the fact that it wasn't relayed to the general public that well. And of course, although it's only local, it still feels blanket to some of those people in the greater Manchester areas. You've got some Tory MPs such as William Ragg and also Graham Brady saying in our areas, in these specific areas, the level of infection is really low. So we're unhappy that it's been applied across the piece to, I think it's 10 different areas of the Northwest. Laura, the criticism mostly about this is not the fact there is a localised lockdown because the government's always said they don't want to have another national lockdown as we saw from March through to July. Instead, they want to do it in specific areas. The main issue seems to be with how it was done. There was so much confusion on Thursday night with some people on Twitter making claims about it. And then Andy Burnham, the mayor of Greater Manchester, saying he didn't really know what was going on there. And Keir Starmer, the opposition leader, said it was shambolic and a new low for government communications. Do you agree with him? I mean, I have to say so myself and our colleague Andy Bounds were scrambling around late hours of Thursday evening trying to put this story together because, as you mentioned, it was a clip that Matt Hancock did immediately after meeting with council leaders in the local area. And then he did a series of tweets. But for about two hours, we weren't completely clear on whether or not households could still go to the pub at all. So now it's very clear you can go 
to the pub with members of your own home, but you can't go there to meet up with another household and you can't have another household in your own. But it was really confusing. We didn't know if that meant all pubs and restaurants were going to have to close because how would they have all these different people within such close proximity? From my perspective, it was really confusing. And if it was confusing for me trying to establish the facts, it would have been incredibly confusing for the four or five million people that this is impacting. I totally accept that the government has to make these decisions very quickly. The guidance can change with almost no warning. But if you are going to announce something, announce it all in one go. When you're locking something down or you're removing a country from the travel safe list, be very clear exactly what's happening. You know, sympathies with what Keir Starmer said. I think he was right. There's been some criticism around on Friday morning that it was purely done on Twitter. It wasn't a statement from Matt Hancock to broadcasters too. But the press release, as you mentioned, didn't go out till very late last night. And it's only really this morning that I totally understand exactly what's happening. Now, Jim, there's confusion about the communication of this. How's it going to be enforced? Because Leicester, as we know, has been in lockdown for some time and still remains in that situation where it's behind the rest of the country on its easing measures. And I think there's been some concern from Greater Manchester Police about, you know, they've got many different things they're trying to deal with this pandemic. And now they've got this new extra complicated set of rules to enforce. Yeah, exactly. I mean, enforcement has been a major issue throughout the last few months. And if you take, for example breaches of the quarantine rules, whereby when you come into the country from an unsafe, inverted commas, other country, you're meant to stay at home and you can be subjected to spot checks. Well, the police put out data two days ago showing that after, I think it's six weeks, only one single fine has been issued to anybody for failing to comply with the rule that you should stay at home and generally not see anyone after returning home. And I think it's going to be similar with this because If the police come down in a heavy-handed fashion on people who have failed to understand the the minutiae of these rules, it's going to look very unfair because, as Laura says, if the professional journalists paid to get their heads around this are struggling to get their heads around some of it, and there was a whiff of a suggestion that Matt Hancock might have slightly misspoken on one element of the rules on the Today programme, which I'm still trying to dig into. And we start off with very clear rules at the beginning, I think it's going to get less and less clear. And, and the rules at the moment look like a kind of boule bass of different variations for different places and different groups of people and households and bubbles. And it's probably only going to get less clear as we go forward, because the reason what's happening in Northern England right now is fascinating. Because I think it's a foretaste of what we're going to end up with in the coming months, with just totally different patterns all over the country, depending on where you are on the curve of the epidemic. And Nova, what's the role of multi-generational households here? Odom Council said that coronavirus is spreading rapidly among those of South Asian heritage who live in households with lots of family. There's not too much the government can really do about that, except just trying for these local lockdowns on those communities where it is growing quicker than others. Yeah, it's interesting. Matt Hancock keeps being asked about this. And he's really been very insistent that the move to impose these local lockdowns is not a preemptive measure or move to try and curtail the Eid celebrations that we're expecting over the weekend. But Muslim Council of Britain were really quick off the mark to say that these restrictions are likely to have a really significant impact on a lot of Muslim families. And he's sort of saying his heart goes out to these Muslim communities. Now, Jim, let's look at the other big coronavirus news this week, which was about quarantine. So first of all, the government announced that those who test positive now have to quarantine from seven to 10 days. 
And last weekend, the government, again, overnight, very rapidly, changed its measure to do with Spain. What's the thinking behind this? So on the Spanish issue, the thing to remember is that we were very late bringing in a, a sweeping quarantine for coming into the UK from all countries. It only came in in early June. Even then, Grant Shapps, Transport Secretary, was saying, don't worry, we'll sort out air bridges to countries that we perceive as safe so as not to totally destroy the summer tourism Mediterranean season. Soon after that, they popped up with this list of sort of traffic light system with some countries red, some countries green, and the green countries perceived as safe. Off you go, fill your boots, and you can travel to them. To be fair to ministers, they did say that this would be updated regularly according to various factors, including infection rates in other countries. Therefore, when they saw last weekend that the data from Spain was rapidly increasing, they took Spain off the safe list, ruining the holidays of many people, not only Grant Schatz himself, who has come back from Spain, leaving his family there. I think he got to enjoy one or two days in Spain. Now, one reason why there's criticism of that measure is because if you look at the Spanish data, yes, overall, it is much higher than the UK. But the high incidence of coronavirus is very much concentrated in the northeast of the country. You can see it on a map of Europe, these very sort of dark spots towards the French border, whereas the rest of the country has pretty low levels. And there was a lot of grief, particularly about the Canaries and the Balearics being included when their levels of infection are far lower than a lot of the UK. So you can sort of understand why the Spanish were very unhappy about that. But I think the British government's approach is and for now, it's far too complicated to try and do a sort of sub-regional approach. They're going to stick to their national approach. Well, whereas the government was quite slow at quarantine earlier on the pandemic, it's certainly a sense that um, the Foreign Office and Downstreet were quite spooked about what they saw from Spain. This week, Dominic Raab had these words to say about the new quarantine measures. We're taking this in a targeted, decisive and focused way. We appreciate the disruption for travellers. Anyone that's uh, at risk losing money needs to go and talk to their travel operator and look at their insurance. But we must take these measures to avoid the risk of reinfection into the UK, given the very serious spike in cases in Spain. Laura, there's a sense in Downing Street that they are worried to use their words about a second wave of coronavirus going across Europe, which Boris Johnson said is beginning. And that's why they're acting quite quickly about quarantine. Oh, yes. Number 10 are very concerned about what they're seeing popping up across Europe. And the really big thing to note here is that this is happening over the summer. And if this is happening over the summer, a lot of officials are questioning what the picture is going to look like when we hit the autumn winter months where we know this virus has a greater chance of spreading. And I think that does explain why we're seeing this sort of whack-a-mole approach. And remember, at the beginning of this whole crisis, government scientists who were advising number 10 have since said that they really did underestimate how many cases were coming in from abroad, from people returning from holiday, from people commuting for work. And because they underestimated that, you saw the spread on a level that they weren't anticipating. And that's why they really are getting behind this in such a strong way and have been very clear with the public actually on this. This is going to be a really uncertain summer. Why not just have a holiday at home in the UK? It's a lot less risky. Holiday goers are going to find out within hours notice 
that they suddenly might have to quarantine for 14 days on the return. And that poses a huge problem for a lot of people that can't just work from home like you and I are privileged enough to do. Huge questions about whether or not they'll get sick pay. Would they have to use holiday time? You know, this really will actually impact people's lives. And I think a lot of the public are probably reconsidering their holiday plans. And as Jim mentioned, this really is terrible news for the tourism industry. Also, the airports who have all issued a joint plate on the government to take a lot more of a a nuanced approach to all of this. And they're calling for the government to expand coronavirus testing at airports so that they can still fly people. And the simple truth is that ministers are saying that they just don't have a viable alternative to this 14-day isolation period. The only thing I would say there is that we have to be a little bit careful about talking as if the huge number of coronavirus cases are sort of coming in from Europe and it's a wave on the mainland. There is as much coronavirus already in the UK as there is in most of Europe still. And there are places like Greece where the infection rate is an awful lot lower. So there is a bit of narrative being created here, blaming outsiders, possibly. I don't know if that's unfair on number 10, but I think we should be aware of that. Jim and Laura, thank you. It's been eight months since Boris Johnson smashed the red wall of traditional Labour seats in the North and Midlands of England to return the Conservative Party's best election result in 30 years. But normal politics has ceased since then due to the coronavirus pandemic, with the government pumping billions of pounds to try and save the economy and jobs. Plus, the era of Jeremy Corbyn is over, with his successor Keir Starmer rapidly removing all traces of his leadership from the party. So how does the Red War feel about all this? Well, in fact, this week, I've been to one of the seats that felt the toys for the first time, Dudley. I wanted to see how these pro-Brexit voters who back Labour all their lives feel about the Johnson government, how it's handled the crisis and the new Labour leadership. Andy Bounds, let's begin with coronavirus. From your perch up in Manchester, how has those post-industrial parts of the North been affected by the pandemic? Well, we've obviously seen some big spikes and outbreaks, particularly in deprived communities where people live very close, packed in terraced housing, often big extended family groups. So there's been a natural transmission there, which the authorities have struggled to contain. And obviously, economically, there's been some real hits, particularly the manufacturing industry has started seeing big job losses in places like car plants. And you've also seen uh, the aerospace industry in trouble, tourism industry, which is a big part of the, of, you know, of the economy here. So there's definitely been a big impact on people's jobs and livelihoods. But it also feels like we've sadly only just started to see that, uh, you know, furlough scheme ends today, at least for, you know, on full government support. So employers will have to pick up some of the costs of furlough. And there's a big worry that jobs will really start to go over the next few weeks. One of the things that surprised me when I was out and about in the West Midlands this week, Andy, is that people actually have a very kind of benign view towards how the government's handled this, that there's obviously been a huge amount of tragedy in terms of the lives lost, the impact on business and livelihoods. But one theme I kept picking up from voters, they say, look, this was unprecedented. Nobody could have predicted this. The government and Boris Johnson has done the best they could in a difficult situation. Have you sensed that that's a feeling at all? I think there is a level of sympathy for the government, given how difficult this has been. But as cases start to spike, and obviously we had this lockdown imposed overnight, that could change. There's been a lot of 
you know, feeling there's been confusion in the messaging and so on. And again, as jobs start to be lost, I think people may become a bit less forgiving of the government's performance. We were all told we'd be through this, you know, the summer would be a time of respite, but uh, it seems like we're going backwards. Well, the Prime Minister has already acknowledged there's a lot of work to do in the Red Wall and that trust had to be built. This is what he had to say on election night. And you may intend to return to Labour next time round. And if that is the case, I am humbled that you have put your trust in me and that you have put your trust in us. And I and we will never take your support for granted. Well, as we heard there, Robert Shrimsey, the Prime Minister was saying he was going to work hard to try and hold on to those seats in the Red War. But that whole agenda really feels as if it's been knocked off course by coronavirus, that all the talk of levelling up the dominated earlier in the year has disappeared as the government's just tried to keep the economy going. Well, I mean, I don't think their agenda and their focus on the seats they've won has been knocked off course. Obviously, they faced issues and events, but I don't think their focus has changed at all. I do think that there is an element of sort of post-electoral validation where if you switch your vote, if you change the political party, you don't immediately want to feel like you've made a terrible mistake. Therefore, people are inclined to give parties they voted for the benefit of the doubt for quite a while. And if you look at the satisfaction ratings with Boris Johnson's handling of this crisis, they're roughly around the level he secured in the general election. So the people who felt good enough to vote for him are essentially sticking with him. And those who never liked him in the first place already think he's made a mess of things. And the polling is actually quite remarkable because if you look back to election night in December, the Tories were on 42%. Um, they rose rapidly during the coronavirus crisis when essentially Rishi Sunak was giving out free money to the country and people felt the government was doing well in the crisis. Then it ebbed back a bit. But the last poll I looked at that came out last week had the government back still on 42%. And it feels to me, Andy, as if people have just switched off from politics, that their lives are dominated by uh, concerns about their health and concerns about their job. They're not really thinking about Tories, Labour, Brexit, the things that dominated the last election. I think that's very true. I mean, if we look back to, uh, you know, a year ago, whenever it was Theresa May was having, you know, daily votes to try and get the Brexit bill through and everything was very fraught and everyone was engaged. We're a long way from that now. It may return in December when you know Brexit may finally happen. But Keir Starmer has done a useful job in distancing himself from Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, there's no doubt that Jeremy Corbyn, his personality, his views on terrorism, his views on you know certain issues with the armed forces and policing, damaged the Labour Party in the North and Midlands of England. And Keir Starmer has sort of set about tackling that issue by issue, but he's still fighting to be heard. But of course, one big element of this was the cultural disconnect between what some people saw as the Labour Party leadership under Jeremy Corbyn and many of the voters out about in England. Caroline Flint was one of the Labour MPs who lost her seat to Don Valley just outside of Doncaster. This is what she had to say on election night. What is the point of the Labour Party if we don't respect and represent those voices? People we have not listened to or respected enough. It is self-evident in Doncaster and across the country that many long-standing Labour voters rejected our candidate for Prime Minister and the politics that surround him. Robert, the key two elements to the Red War's collapse were Brexit and Jeremy Corbyn. Both of those have now disappeared or will have disappeared, certainly by the next election that Mr Corbyn has gone and Keir Starmer has made a big effort to remove his legacy. Do you get any sense that that's actually cut through with voters? We've obviously been very occupied with it in Westminster. The loss of Jeremy Corbyn has 
cuts through. People have noticed Keir Starmer, and although it's very early, they don't have a clear view of what he is, they've got a clear view of what he might not be. And so far, they're pleased. I mean, I, like, like you said, have spent a bit of time in Dudley. I was up there during the election and I was up there again a bit more recently. I mean, this is a, a constituency, for example, that voted 71% for Brexit and saw people attempting to ignore and overturn its vote. It's a place that you can see the immense civic pride that existed in this town, which has slowly ebbed away through unemployment, the young moving away. And to have a prime minister saying, I'm focusing on people like you and I'm going to deliver for people like you is a very, very powerful thing. And these voters don't want Boris Johnson to have lied to them. They want him to be telling the truth. And they're going to stick with him as long as they can, as long as, as, long as it seems viable, because he has turned up, listened to them, articulated their views. I think the biggest challenge is going to be clearly the scale of unemployment that's coming. And when people start to see that and start to ask questions about whether Boris Johnson really is for them. So the big focus, I think, for his government is going to be showing those kind of people that actually whatever crises we're going through, and, and, and you know, Andy's right, people don't blame the government for the pandemic, certainly for the, the initial pandemic. But as things move on, they will hold the government to account. And so the government's going to have to show that it really is working for them and the people in those areas. The other point that conservative politicians, I think, have made very well is they're very positive about the areas they represent. And I think Labour got sucked into a bit of a mantra for years of, you know, my place needs this, my place needs that. It's going down the tubes. And the conservative MPs, and this really started with Ben Bradley in, in, in Mansfield, you know, talk up their area and they say how great it is and how wonderful it is. And people do actually respond to that. And I think Keir Starmer needs to learn from that. And, and so do his, you know, his MPs and candidates on the ground. That You may feel as a, as a visitor that there are challenges in this place, but the people that live there often really, really like it. And, they, and they've decided to stay there for reason. And I think Starmer's trying to do that, but of course the pandemic stopped him. He was going to do big tours of, of these seats and he was going to meet members and he, he's had to do all that by Zoom and take phone-ins and so on. So I think he will get round to that agenda next year. Yeah, I mean, I think the civic pride point is really important. I, but during the election, I went round Dudley with the outgoing MP Ian Austin and I remember driving and he was pointing to places that showed what a vibrant and thriving and successful town this once had been. He point, he, we drove along and said, see that place over there? And I think it was a, a pizza restaurant. That used to be a showroom selling Bentleys. And we went around a corner and see that place over there? That used to be a Rolls-Royce showroom. The point is there was money in these towns. People have money. They were able to make nice suits for themselves. There was a bespoke tailors. You know, there were all kinds of things that said, this is a prosperous part of the industrial heartland of, of Britain. And that whole identity has been shattered. And People want a government that's going to listen to them and bring some of that back, improve the transport structures, improve the infrastructure, improve the job opportunities. And the Conservatives were putting money into this region. And so I think certainly in, in the West Midlands, they've got an audience ready to listen to them. They won't listen indefinitely. And if things get really tough, they'll be open again to another leader of another party. But the leader will have to show that he also can represent the civic pride and the national pride that they're looking for. I totally agree with that. And just to give a reflection of some of the things I saw in Dudley that I spoke to the owner of one of the big pubs in the middle of Dudley Town Centre. And she said to me, you know, I can't imagine voting Labour again right now, but let's see what the Conservatives do. And I think it's quite striking, Andy, that Boris Johnson's first major speech post-coronavirus was in Dudley. He went to the new Institute of Technology, which is one of the examples of how the town has been regenerated, to give the build, build, build speech. And he's saying, this is how we're going to bounce back even better, which is good rhetoric. But as Robert says, if we're going to have a lot of unemployment and lots of businesses struggling, these towns could get worse before you can even think about them getting better. 
it really is delivery time now. I mean, the the Osborne Cameron government very much invested in city centres in the hope that they would lure big employers and so on into the city centres, which they've done, and big investors and world-class universities. And they tried to build that out to reach those peripheral towns. That was in the early days. So those peripheral towns hadn't really felt the effect. The, the Johnson approach is to invest directly in those towns. But then the question is, a lot of that's got to be done by the public sector initially to bring the private sector in. And we've seen very little sign so far, despite all the speeches. And obviously, this crisis has blown them off course. But, you know, apart from a few announcements about railways and so on, you know, they talk about reopening railways. We still don't know which ones or how quickly they'll happen or whether the feasibility studies are yet being funded. You know, mayor, regional mayors and council leaders are crying out for investment now and, 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 a, and a sense of direction. And we can see beyond this pandemic to the uplands beyond rather than what's coming over the next few months, which is going to be pretty grim. And Robert, the West Midlands is going to really be the first test of what's going on in the Red Wall because it's got one of the country's most powerful directly elected mayors. And Andy Street, who's the former chief executive of John Lewis, he won the West Midlands mayoralty in 2017 for the Tories. He's up for re-election. He's going up against Liam Byrne, who is a long-standing Labour MP. He was chief secretary of the Treasury under New Labour. And his view when I spoke to him in Birmingham this week was that Keir Starmer is a game changer. We can now be relevant again. And coronavirus shows why we need to build back in the green revolution. Everybody loves talking about the green revolution now. But when we get to that election next May, it is going to be a test to see have the Tories held on to these places? Can Labour punch back? Yeah, I mean, that election is going to be a really, really fascinating one. Obviously, it was meant to have happened this year. And I think had it done so, Andy Street would have been re-elected and probably quite comfortably, certainly on the tailwind of the Conservative victory in the general election. But the pandemic has changed everything. It's been delayed a year. It's given Labour another year to organise. It's got a more plausible national leader. And it was terribly, terribly close last time around anyway. So the region is up for grabs. And I think it's going to be a very, very telling sign of whether the Conservatives can hold on in place like this. Because if Andy Street is beaten, he is their most high profile regional mayor. And if he were to lose, it would not only set back the cause of the Tories in the West Midland, it will set back the argument, I think, for devolution, because no governments like giving power to the other side. And if they've lost all their major cities, then they may think twice about it. I think it's going to be a really, really important test and absolutely one to watch. Andy and Robert, thanks for joining. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, we'd recommend subscribing to us. You can find it through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder, Josh Delamere, and Breen Turner. Until next time, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. 
You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.